listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. I want to read a message that I, I got today from a very good friend. Uh, the discussion that we were having recently was about um, partnerships and so forth. And I don't think there's anything more um, valuable for one's spiritual practice than a partnership, whether it, it is problematic or smooth sailing. Um, and in a really interesting way, they're always problematic. No matter what, even when it's smooth sailing, seas get rough every once in a while. How we negotiate and navigate rough seas can be really, really interesting and an amazing spiritual practice. So this, uh, this quick poem was written by, and if you haven't been turned on to this poet, Atticus, you need to be turned on to Atticus. It's just great, great stuff. Contemporary, short, sweet, to the point, really special, I think, anyway. She was the most beautiful, complicated thing I'd ever seen. A tangled mess of silky string. And all I wanted of life was to sit down, cross-legged, and untie her knots. I just thought that was so beautiful. I'll say it again for you. She was the most beautiful, complicated thing I'd ever seen. A tangled mess of silky string. And all I wanted of life was to sit down cross-legged and untie her knots. Now we could shift the personal possessive here. We could turn it into his and her or him just as easily. But to sit and untie each other's silky knots. Whether it's an intimate relationship, a familial relationship, or a relationship with your gas station attendant that you typically go to. Of course, now it's all ATM, so who cares? That's not it. Uh, you get the idea, though. The person at the Comcast store. <laughs> Whatever your relationships are, can you... Can you recognize them as silky string? In its own way, silk is always beautiful. Even, it, even in undyed forms, in its raw form, it's beautiful. And if we can kind of meet and recognize that we are a mass, a jumble of ancient, twisted karma in every scenario, and that we co-create with others this very life, that we're leading. Sometimes relationships are smooth. Other times they can be a little rocky. Regardless, it's tangled silky string. And tangled silky string can also be beautiful. So we sometimes have this saying, in this sangha at least, where we recognize the beauty even when it's not pretty. We recognize the power of what we experience in all of its forms. And we can begin to see this trajectory of kind of how 
all of this begins to unfold in a beautiful way, how our spiritual practice begins to kind of unravel these silky knots that are our own. Taking ownership of those silky knots is something that shows up so quickly as our practice deepens. We begin to see uh, habitual thought patterns. I don't know if you've noticed this as your practice has deepened at all. You kind of begin, <laughs> you begin to recognize, uh, oh yeah, there it is again. Or the best one is, ah, I thought I was done with that one. Those of us who've been sitting for a long period of time will still find that a strange. Oh my God, there you are again. Huh, welcome. I had a teacher who was always about that. Welcome. Welcome, whatever it is. He had a scenario that he described once in a Dharma talk. We were in a uh, practice period. And um, he was describing the experience where uh, he needed to use uh, a restroom um, and forgot to latch the door and a monk came in and there he was and he, and he commented in a real world situation how basically it was welcome I mean what else are you going to do <laughs> get out you know I mean what does a Zen master do when someone barges in when they're in one of life's most private moments hey but I remember thinking this was this is a very powerful teaching, um, in that we tend to set up rules and parameters as to how we want the world to show up. What is okay and what's not okay, and we attach and cling to those viewpoints. So. Before we sit tonight, I wanted to give everyone the uh, Reader's Digest version of one map of how this process begins to kind of unfold, the, the trajectory of awakening. And um, we, can, we can come back to it uh, if, if you wish, but uh, I'm going to take the, the rather uh, famous Chinese from the Sung Dynasty in around 1270 or so, the very famous 10 ox herding pictures, uh, which are this traditional map of, of awakening. And I'm going to simplify, super duper simplify, okay? Which means I'm sure that I will be castigated and mocked by every real Zen authority, and that's okay. First thing we start with is we start recognizing that there is um, a spiritual journey to be had. That we recognize, huh, something is not quite right. Uh, I don't know what your what your uh, reasoning was. If you can think back, why? I mean, why are you here? How did you show up? What were what were the circumstances? That's step one. We want to seek a uh, uh, or we embark rather on a spiritual path. We call this seeking the ox. And then what happens is we begin to, step two, find some tracks. We begin to recognize, ah, aha, there we go. It's inspiring. And everybody finds tracks a little bit differently. Um, 
but our confidence is always inspired once tracks are seen that, okay, this, this, is, this is the real deal, this isn't fake. Okay? There's something here. There's something to be had. Next, we begin to glimpse the ox. The ox, by the way, here represents uh, enlightenment or awakening. We begin to glimpse awakening. We glimpse the ox. Uh, subject and object are suddenly seen a little bit differently. It's as if we have deepened the experience of our own consciousness. And we begin to see things a little bit differently. We begin to see our mind at work. We begin to see our body. Our body and our mind are then seen as experiences. What's really difficult here in step three is that, as I mentioned earlier, past thought patterns begin to explode and begin to kind of go, I've been doing that stupid thing my entire adult life, or I cannot believe, this is so difficult, this keeps happening. How is it that that keeps unfolding? But we, we begin to see it. Step four, we begin to catch the ox. And by that, it's not just glimpses, but now we're starting to see it. Now it's starting to, actually, there's a, um, uh, it's almost as if there's a sinking in of some type of awakening, either through experience or through, sometimes uh, people talk about how it's just the right word that is said at just the right talk, which really kind of shakes them into a, whoa, you know? It's not little anymore. Now it's a little bit, if you will, bigger. But the problem is these, these glimpses, while more profound than the smaller ones, uh, put us into a very, very interesting egoic situation because we want to try to, to own the experience. We want to try to get it again. We want to try to manage it. We want to try to, if you will, wrestle the ox and gain control. And it's not until we advance our practice and recognize that the ox or that awakening is in and of itself quite unruly, that we can't control it in that recognition that it cannot be controlled and in kind of an opening, a welcoming, if you will, of the experience, the ox itself becomes somewhat tamed. We start to see a very significant difference between what I say, a consciousness, perhaps, in our ordinary mind. We begin to see ordinary mind as kind of like, oh yeah, that's mine. But there's an awareness of mind. There's the birth, if you will, of this witnessing awareness that kind of begins to unfold as we begin to tame the ox. In taming the ox, we then get a chance to ride the ox. This next step Step six is when we're no longer struggling. We're no longer struggling with this idea of awakening. We're no longer struggling to awaken. We're no longer doing meditation. Meditation is doing us. There's a, uh, not only a welcoming, but a merger uh, of self and other. The illusion of subject and object is still there not like it's gone away totally, 
but our relationship to our world, the relationship to events, the relationship to people, intimates and otherwise, can be seen as beautiful, even when it's not pretty. Silky string becomes the substrate of all stuff. It's all seen as silk. It's all beautiful. Our relationship to it, though, has changed a bit. The next step, seven, awakening itself is kind of let go. There's a, there's a surrender of awakening. Because there is no separation from awakening and this self. It's as if the small self has merged with big self in the previous step. And this grand unification, this divine disaster, as I some say, of everything kind of just falling away, allows for us to sit and carry a tame dox, if you will, with us, as us, all the time. We embody an awakening to what is beyond the small self. And we walk in the world thusly. Now once this begins to stabilize, no thingness begins to take over. Emptiness begins to take over. In other words, there is no subject, not only no subject and object dualism, it's as if everything kind of falls away. We're still here. We still scramble our eggs. We still stop when the light is red, <laughs> you know. We're still in the world, but there is something significantly different about the way experience works. We see this unconditioned state that is now infiltrating and flooding our experience and inspiring a shift in trait. A state creates a shift in trait. The idea itself of awakening becomes silly, as does the idea of ideas. There's an emptiness that begins, begins to permeate what it is that we're about. And then from this place, as this begins to stabilize, we then move into what we might call returning to the source. We come back into the world, but we come back into the world from a very, very open, welcoming, deepened place. We, we've been able to recognize the knots in our own silken strings as well as those of others, and we've seen them merge. We've come from this place of no thingness to somethingness in an effortless and spontaneous way. Maybe you've heard the expression, at first we see a mountain, and then we see that it's not a mountain, and then it becomes a mountain. Zen with koan. In other words, at first, we see it as a physical object out there, and then we begin to see it as this grand merger, as something that arises within our own consciousness, and it begins to really not appear as much as a mountain, but it appears as us, and we as it. We 
so forth. And then we begin to see it as a mountain again. This is, where, this is what happens in this ninth step, where we begin to return to the source. In the tenth step, and this is the most important in this particular school of Buddhism, the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, is we begin to share it. In whatever capacity that, that looks like. Maybe it's how we move our cart through the Whole Foods aisles. <laughs> I don't know why I have a lot of trouble in the Whole Foods aisles, or Trader Joe's, but especially Whole Foods. Whole Foods has a whole different attitude. And you know that everybody has a Prius or a Volvo. And so it's just really, it's, it's, uh, for those of you that have Prius or Pri or Volvos, I'm sorry, but uh, um, there's just a very interesting attitudinal <laughs> shift there. Everybody goes back to step three. Kidding aside, there's this, uh, there's this way we, we share it. We share it. One of the most surprising things that happened to me as a monk is kind of going through this process and everything and then hitting this place where it's like, God, how do I share this? Um, and you can have that experience at any point on the path. Uh, the compulsion to make sure that this happens uh, really arises kind of in this final step. And that's what the Mahayana, uh, the, the grand vehicle, as we say in Buddhist scripture, that's what it's about. It's how do we make sure that this is something that is a shared experience. It's us together, all of us together. We're all in the same, same boat. But this is kind of this map. This is how this particular map works. And I find it quite beautiful and quite elegant. And my hope is that just for you know, the time we're together that you can, uh, you can explore the relationship you have with the ox, with awakening, with enlightenment. However it is you have it built in your mind or however it is that you have let it go, recognize your relationship to it. And with that said, this evening as we sit for the next 30 or so minutes. Just know that you don't have to do anything. There's nothing that needs to be done. You just sit still. Just be quiet. Just allow for a deep, authentic welcoming to be there. No matter what happens, welcome it. And in that steadiness, there's a stabilization. Wherever you are on the, on the path, there's a stabilization that allows you to develop spontaneously all the requirements to move naturally into the next, into the next space. You don't have to do anything. There's nothing that will push you there better than non-pushing. He was the most beautiful, complicated thing I'd ever seen. A tangled mess of silky string. And all I wanted of life was to sit down cross-legged and untie his knots.
Rumi says pain will be born from that look cast inside yourself and this pain will make you go behind the veil. Pain will be born from that look cast inside yourself and this pain will make you go behind the veil. Going behind this veil is offered to us all the time. And maybe another way of looking at it, especially as it related to what we were discussing last week for those of you that were here, is what's behind the, the mask, persona, I believe if, uh, in, in Latin or Greek is mask. And uh, for those Greek scholars in here, let me know if I've blown that, but um, uh, going behind that veil really is afforded to us at any opportunity. Um, I will admit that in my meditative experience, one of the things that was really bizarre to me was that the more uncomfortable the meditation was, the more I was forced into the present. I had no escape. There was no place I could go. And then I had to deal with that stuff. And dealing with that stuff proved to be, again and again and again, this very, very useful step in, um, uh, in the process of awakening. It had nothing to do, of course, with chakras. It had nothing to do with feeling good. It had nothing to do with the astral level of anything. It was raw, unexpurgated distress. And it had to be faced. And in facing it fully, there's this really beautiful notion of, oh my gosh, there's nowhere to go. Of course, I could just get up from my cushion and leave. I was always free to leave. <laughs> in and of itself, this is kind of weird. I'm choosing to do this? What the hell? You know? <laughs> but pain has a way of focusing us into this no escape zone. And the no escape zone is precisely what can afford us some pretty amazing opportunities for stillness. If you can't escape, you don't run. And if you don't run, and by logic, you don't walk either. If you are still, amazing stuff begins to unfold. So one of the things that we, we, we look at in this particular teaching that comes from this particular Mahayana or Zen tradition um, is a conscious recognition of what lies precisely beyond this struggle. A conscious recognition of what simultaneously is prior to this struggle. Can we become still? All we're trying to do here, just be still. Be still of body and mind. Let opinions, let everything, let judgments, let memories, let plans, let it all quiet down. And over time, it begins to reveal. are clinging. What are we clinging to? We're clinging to pleasure. We're clinging to the way our egos feel or our minds feel that things should be. 
we are clinging to hope. We are clinging to, to not this. <laughs> you get the idea. It becomes an addiction to cling. So if we're not clinging to this, we're clinging to that. And thus we have this, this I've joked about it, a spiritual brachiation, swinging from cling to cling to cling, never stopping. And if we're never stopping, we're always on the move. And if we're always on the move, we are always in ego or in mind. We are always bound by movement. We are not sitting still or being still. Body and mind are always rattling. And yet in the midst of all that rattling, there is stillness. We were talking about the term uh, with my daughters, technically, the term technically. And I know teenage is just on the cusp here too, the minute they go with that one, technically bad. Um, we were talking about um, straight lines and how there's this great myth about Michelangelo uh, you know, for the Sistine Chapel, his audition was, you know, well, what would you give, give us the most profound bit of bit of art and show us why you deserve to paint the Sistine Chapel? I don't, I have no idea if this is true, but I remember hearing the story and thinking, okay, that's kind of cool. And what did he do? He painted a perfectly straight line, and he held like a ruler up to it, evidently, and like, whoa! Now, of course, he's going to get the gig. Who else are they going to give it to? You know, let's see <laughs> the greatest, you know, greatest artist of all time. Or there's this guy named Steve. Who did he? <laughs> Stivario, I guess. Anyway, I guess uh, I guess where I'm going with this technically uh, technically piece is my my daughters. Uh, we're talking about how technically there's no such thing as drawing a straight line, even if you use a ruler, because technically the ruler isn't even straight. There are, there might be divots in the ruler, and therefore it's not straight. Oh, okay. So that's that's down at a very small level. Yeah, very small, but technically bad. <laughs> So we technically need to have a mind, we need to have an ego, good, put to good use, it can be very, very helpful. And I would say that one of the great attachments that we're looking at here is our attachment to that ego as being the, the, the be-all and the end-all of experience. And this teaching, with its stillness, okay, is designed to rattle us out of that cage. Kind of like I was talking about in the, the Oxford um, story, you know, how the, the, we, we get to a point where we, we begin to see the ox, we're enticed by it. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, God, you know, I get glimpses, right? So you get those glimpses, then pretty soon those glimpses begin to stabilize and there's kind of a knowing, or as I refer to it as a capital K knowing, we start to witness our experience. We begin to look at the mind as an experience of some deeper subject. The mind is an object of some deeper subject. What is that deeper 
witnessing subject that can see them. The body is also an experience. What is the experiencer of that body? Because that the body might age, but the experiencer of that body has remained the same. Take your earliest memory. That earliest memory involved this cool thing called awareness. Take the memory of your first kiss. That memory involved your being present for that experience. Maybe it was awesome. Maybe it was horrible. Regardless, you were there for it. You were there for maybe birth. You were there for a marriage. You were there for a divorce. You were there for a death. You, there was awareness. The awareness itself has always been equal. The content of that experience may have varied significantly. That's not what we're talking about, but that's really as far as the ego can go. The ego just looks at experience, the witness of those experiences, begins to recognize them as, as, as events that happen within some context. And this is huge in terms of spiritual growth and development. We begin to recognize we have been addicted and we have been clinging to a particular way of seeing the world, seeing ourselves, seeing ourselves in the world, seeing other people, seeing other people, and as they see us, and how we want them to see us, and the great egoic manipulation and negotiation of the whole show. This changes things. This practice changes things. And we start engaging in stillness practice, an authentic stillness practice where we shut up and sit still and do it a lot. We start settling down. And every time we settle down, we settle down a little bit further. And the ox herding pictures that I was referring to kind of point us in that direction. Where we, we get to a point where it's no longer something that is sought. There's no seeking. There's a recognition. There's a finding. Seeking, after all, is movement. Going after something. You begin to not seek anymore. You begin to rest in that non-seeking. We begin to rest in stillness, as stillness. We start recognizing that our awareness has always been still. That it was unmade, unborn, un uncreated. It's not dying. It's always been there. It's always been exactly the same. It is always present. It is always present. Therefore, it is eternal. So this gives a whole new interpretation, potentially, of uh, any type of spiritual teaching that talks about the eternal. It talks about, you know, we, we look at at eternity as um, uh, uh, going on forever in a particular direction, usually future, involving future. But in this context, we can look at the forever as being what we're with all the time, the present moment. It's always the present moment. It's never not been the present moment. Forever. It's been the present moment. And a stillness practice begins to kind of let this percolate through our being. And we begin to recognize it all as tangled silk. And we begin to recognize 
that we can take care of our own tangles. And even if we're working on our own tangles and we meet somebody in the process, hopefully we have loosened those tangles enough we can loosen them together. Of course, you might run into a situation, as has happened to most of us, where, where you run into people who help you tighten those tangles. <laughs> those people need to be eliminated forcefully. I'm kidding. They're giving us a gift. They're giving us a gift. Every time someone starts to tighten our silk, that gives us reason to pause, reason to consider. So it's no good to wrestle, but it does help us consider how to establish a boundary. In the boundless universe, in the boundless consciousness, there is still room for boundary. But now it's applied consciously with purpose, with care, with wisdom and compassion. I know those can become just words for us, but really we can begin to approach all silk with a, with a tenderness. At least that's the teaching. At least that's the lean. Something for each and every one of us to consider, to try out. Test it. Test this stuff. Do not take anyone's word for it, especially mine. Because I'm just I'm drunk most of the time. I'm just up here. I'm <laughs> shit faced up here, just babbling on and on and on. I'm kidding, Cindy. I'm just a joke. Don't take my word for it. Don't take anybody's word for it. Try this stuff. Try being still. Try engaging. Try engaging the world from a place of open recognition and welcoming. Try to recognize the tangle in self and in other. Try to recognize when you're tightening somebody else's or yours is getting tightened. What can you do to loosen it again? What can you do to open it up so that it's just beautiful, flat, flowing, flying in life's stream? And then report to another. Dr. Ansley? Yes. I'm right here. If there's a fixer at play, yeah. so help me with the question real clearly so I, I make sure I get it because I don't want to answer the wrong one. If you're asking,
I would say definitely is a fixing ego. If your fixer that wants to jump in and untie somebody else's knots. Usually we, we want to tell them about the knots that we see. <laughs> you know? So then that's not hmm? the big self. That's definitely not the big self. That's the small self pretending it's the big self. Pretending it's the knowing okay. self with okay. the doctoral degree and the If there is the, the still, if the practice is informing the identification of the tangle, in other words, if there's tenderness saying, and it's how you would say that to another person in what we, in, in uh, uh, Pali, the language of the Buddha, we, we would use what we call upaya, the skillful means of expressing that concern. And so it can be. Yes, that's the first, usually the first, the first line. Now, some of us have people in our lives that are really not interested in hearing about their knots. I can't imagine it either. Yeah, but my God, it's there. They're so stupid. The uh, teasing aside, you, you, we, we run into these situations where it's so much easier for us to look at somebody else's, yeah, you know? when in effect their knots are inspiring our own. Otherwise, we wouldn't point them out. Yeah. I, I think um, it was, I believe, Carl Jung who capitalized on the saying in Tagalog, the Philippines saying, when you point a finger at somebody else, you've got three pointing back at yourself. He said, when you find something in another, paraphrasing, of course, find something in another that you cannot stand, it's usually self-loathing that took place. And I think that there's so much wisdom in that and so much to work with. Now, of course, it's, it, it, you, see, you see somebody who's exemplifying some horrific behaviors and so forth. It doesn't mean you are necessarily engaging in those behaviors, but you don't like them in yourself either when they come up, if in fact they do. So it's not limited to that definition. I think there are things we can see in others that just are frightening that we would never do. But I believe we have the capacity to be as atavistic, to be as brutal, to be as, as, as greedy as anyone. We have that capacity. Um, fortunately, we have been most likely socialized through our upbringing our culture, our immediate friendships, and so forth, that kind of keep us from going to that space. But I do think it's possible. Um, I was once asked, do you do, okay, yeah, you're a Buddhist, so do you have the capacity to kill? And my response was, absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely, of course. Try hurting one of my babies. Watch it, Buddha will go over there, you know? Now, I don't know if that's the way I would react, but I know that I have that capacity. I know I have that capacity. Um, does that make me a bad Buddhist or a bad person? I don't know. I don't really care. I'm just saying this is, the, the, this is kind of the, there's a deep humanness in this practice, and 
And while I would like to say I would react a certain way in a certain situation, I'll give you an example. I've got to be careful how I talk about this, but there was a threat um, to my school. So there was a, yeah, there was a threat, threat to our school, and I was very clear, no one was coming in my school, period. Period. So, what did that mean? And I, I had just a very, very calm sense that by any means necessary, this person stops. If I have to do it, I will do it. However I have to do it, I will do that. I'm not saying that to like, sound, you know, you know, macho guy. It's just the way I was in that moment. Very, very clear, you know? So what about you? And this is where the teaching is really kind of cool. Uh, to flip it onto you, what do you, how about you? You know, where, where and, and just at least turning these things in your head is such a great point of practice. Who knows what you'll ever have to face, but to really kind of explore that sense of self to the point of opinionated righteousness, to the point of non-opinion, all everything in between, we begin to explore and we begin to see it much more clearly the more we sit still. And we start recognizing how to give people space, a little bit of a break that they're not sure. Really obvious to us and not so obvious to them. How is it that we can use an effective language, upaya, appropriate means to communicate that in ways that can be heard by them, not so much that our ego needs to say? I hope that makes a little bit of sense. I tied a whole bunch of stuff yeah. in there. It just seems that it's kind of flying around a And that's where one's uh, life becomes art. When we can, when we can uh, conflate and merge those lines, uh, where, where criticism is instead comes from a very, very loving openness, that communication changes. It doesn't have an edge to it. It doesn't have any attachment affiliated with it egoically at all. But that takes tremendous presence to be able to communicate on that level and tremendous trust uh, that we need to engender in, in the person who's receiving it from us. And we also have to be willing to look at ourselves with uh, in twice as much charge back the other way. That's really, really hard, but boy, what a gift we can become for each other if we can do that. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you made sense to me. I can't speak for them. Do they make? They're nodding. They're nodding. No, I think that makes. I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Eric, you're very lucky. Just saying. Just the idea. <laughs> Do we have anybody uh, anybody else that wanted to throw anything out there?
Yeah, Janae. something that never gets untied the way you'd like to see it get untied. For him, I want it for him. For him, but your sense of what untied looks like may not correspond with what his idea of an untied knot looks like. I don't know that. But but it's, this is where this is where the practice comes into play and can be very, very useful. What does his freedom look like? For him. Not for you. Right. For him. Right? And then we begin to see our kids through a, a, a different set of eyes because it's not how we'd like to see things for them. It's how we would like to see them see themselves, yeah. right? And that comes from a very simple admonition, simple teaching, difficult but simple. And it's no surprise to you because you've heard me say it a trillion times, let go, mm -hmm. let go, be there. If you can be there this way, as opposed to this way, or this way, right? Every one of us, on some level, has a person in our life that is just, oh, you know, crazy making. Crazy making. And also, they're our best teachers in most respects, because they teach us about our own attachments, if we let them. And so, I have no idea that, that you know, the, the intricacies of your relationship, but my encouragement to you and to everybody else, and I'm saying it to myself as well, let go, let go. It doesn't mean push away. Yeah, it's, I'm trying to get away. Yeah, the push, well, and, and, <laughs> well, and that's appropriate because otherwise, it's not compassion if it's just going one direction. It has to go both directions for it to be compassion. If it's only going in one direction and it's denying the self that's offering that's making the extended offering that's called codependency okay right it's got to go both ways in order for and that's why sometimes i mean i got i got so much a uh, 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 play off of this one but i said sometimes the most compassionate thing get ready i'm gonna swear okay, okay. are you ready seatbelt on the most compassionate thing you can say is no fucking way I bet you have, but that's, that's just because I know you. But, no, but you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes the most compassionate thing any of us can say is that, no. We have a boundary when he starts screaming at me on the phone. That's so? Excellent. Excellent. And because the, the, the screaming on the phone, typically people who do that have learned it's useful. It's a 
Well, whatever it is, I'm just saying that people in general. And so to set boundaries like that for, for yourself is incredibly compassionate and even helps him, uh, you know, de-infantilize, the word, de-infantilize the reactions, the reactivity and so forth, hopefully. And if it doesn't, if the Swiss cheese, so to speak, prevails, at least there's a skill set that has been broached. So I, I, uh, I've dealt a lot with people in my time as an educator and then personally people who've had personality disorder. And the thing that's so tough about them is that they're impossible to treat. You know, they, you can't medicate your way out of borderline or out of, uh, you know, it just ain't gonna happen. So you have to figure out then how to look at the silk, look at the Gordian knot, you know, the, the mythological, there's no way that that thing's getting done. And do you go after it with a sword and cut it to open it up or do you allow it to unravel on its own but be there for it when it does potentially unravel just a little bit more and be thankful in those moments? It's tough. There isn't an answer here, but the let go piece I think is critical for you, for him, for the world in, in general. So I mean that just in terms of how the teaching kind of plays out. But it's a good, thank you for sharing that. That's that's a courageous, um, and, and I, I wish I wish you and I wish him luck in, in these next steps. It's amazing what happens usually by the time somebody hits thirty two. Yeah, it's only eight years away. <laughs> Exactly. That is such, I've never heard, I like that. You gotta get yourself to deal with them. Yeah. Kind of right? <laughs>